We acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Turrbal and Yagara people, and their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and flood media is recorded on stolen land. Okay, cool. So I might just, I'll kick off the show then. Um, uh, today we actually have a guest. Uh, so um, with me and Matt is um, Jeremiah Brown, who works at the Centre for Social Impact um, at UNSW and uh, does um, a lot of research work around economic dignity, and precarity, things of that nature. Um, but he's actually on the show with us today to uh, have a broader chat about academia. Um, Matt, I think you were the one who kind of yeah, spearheaded yeah. this show. So do you want to give us like a brief rundown of um, what we'll be talking about? Yeah, so broadly what I was thinking about is, um, I think we've all got some kind of academic background. Um, I have I dropped out of a PhD. Um, Joe is just beginning a PhD and Jeremiah, of course, works in the university. And I've become kind of very interested recently in um, this kind of phenomenon, uh, basically the way that um, the university and like the internal culture of academia and the kind of knowledge that's produced in academia seems to be shaping the internal culture of the left. Um, and like more broadly, like the whole kind of neoliberal system. But really there's this uh, there's this emerging phenomenon where like one of the best predictors of voting patterns is whether or not you have a degree and like how advanced that degree is. Um, like people with PhDs invariably almost always vote for the most left-wing parties. Uh, people with no college background at all, very strong tendency to vote for right-wing parties. And this was not always the case. This is part of a broader process of class inversion where like it, it used to be that well-educated people would vote for the more um, right-wing or conservative or like liberal in an economic sense parties. Um, and then the working class people without an education would be voting for labor parties effectively. And this for a long time has been changing. Um, I think kind of since the advent of the near like neoliberalism and like I think really picking up in the 90s maybe the this has been reversing so now it's exactly the opposite and so I've got an interest in like how this came to be um what the role of the university sort of is how the university's changed over the last few decades um and this process of kind of uh privatization and kind of uh, well, like like managerialization, where the number of teaching staff seem to have often stayed the same, but then like the uh, number of uh, managers and um, administrators have kind of massively expanded, um, and has taken on this kind of role in um, kind of producing this huge amount of knowledge that kind of goes into like the think tanks and kind of informs all these political projects, but then is also very much shaped by like the internal culture of the university, which has become more kind of privatized and more kind of very uh, job organized and like organized around what's the like the economic value of everything. Um, and I think that has a significant effect as well on how the left thinks and how the left operates and what the left's kind of assumptions are about what it should be doing and what its role is, given that 
increasingly more and more people on the left have gone through the academic system and have come out with these degrees. Um, so that's generally what I wanted to be talking about. And I thought we could start by talking a little bit about who we are and what our backgrounds are and what our experiences have been with the university. Um, just like how we think of it generally. And then we could move on to, then I was gonna ask uh, Jerry a bit more, if you can sort of talk us through like how the university works and why it's like this and how we can fix it. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Um, so I guess, yeah, I'll, I'll um, maybe kick us off by yeah talking about my experiences with uh, the university system. And um, one of the reasons I was interested to talk through these things a bit um, in more detail is um, because I have a kind of psychologically fraught relationship with academia that both of my parents were academics. Um, so, you know, take, take everything um, that I say with a grain of salt. Um, but so then I think at an earlier stage in my life, I very much wanted to be on that path and I think went through the kind of model um, path for someone who was going to enter academia in the humanities or social sciences, i.e. Um, getting an arts degree and then getting an honours degree. Um, and then after that, um, I wanted to do a PhD and um, because I was had been told I was special way too many times, I applied for um, much, two prestigious universities that did not accept me. But I did. Well, I did get offered a master's degree um, at the University of Chicago, and so that's um, where I ended up getting a master's degree. That's my first experience with postgraduate education, um, and so that was interesting. Uh, in that, I feel like the US has a much more um, in, in some ways a less neoliberalized or overtly neoliberalized education, higher education system than Australia. Um, the classes, I mean, it's got a, a much stronger sense of kind of liberal arts education and the classes that I did there were um, very much like, well, we called them seminars and they were um, kind of, yeah, these small group discussions. Everyone was really expected to participate. Um, it was like a high academic standard and we were treated much more as, I think, colleagues than students. Um, so there was a bit of that it kind of like, I guess, what people often think in the popular imagination is kind of that Oxford or Cambridge style of um, collegial discussion and scholarly discussion. Um, at the same time, though, it was like an, a sphere of like intense personal cruelty. And um, <laughs> that is like that is the slogan, I think, for academia. <laughs> yeah, maybe that we can. That'll be the um, episode title. <laughs> is that accurate depiction? <laughs> yeah, um, and like. I just really, like, I still can't really believe it, um, how bad it was. And like, I remember after my graduation, um, at like the kind of mixer afterwards, there was this professor who, I can't even remember what our conversation was about, but he did like, when it was over, I was like, I, I did cry, like <laughs> out of how kind of petty and horrible he was being. And um, my dad was with me and I was like, look, that wasn't just me, was And he was like, no, I couldn't believe what, what he was being like. So... Um, yeah, like there's kind of never like overt um, cruelty or malice, but more just like subtle undercutting the whole time. Um, so I guess that really turned me off um, that whole, the whole idea of being an academic. And I still remember um, that like realizing how much stress and worry this was causing me um, because, you know, realistically, if, if I did go and then do a PhD, I didn't know where I would end up afterwards. The academic job market is, you know, terrible. Um, and so 
I still remember just feeling like, wow, this is causing me like so much stress. What if I just didn't have to do it? <laughs> and at that moment, it was like a light switched on and I was like, oh my God, I can be free. <laughs> um, so that was, um, when was that? That was about four, no, five years ago. Um, so came back to Brisbane and happily entered a non-academic life. Um, and then I worked for a while um, in the sort of academia adjacent world of the CSIRO. Uh, and that was an interesting experience too. Um, and maybe I'll talk a little bit more about that, but it was um, kind of like not, you know, not fulfilling, um, not uh, like as intellectually rigorous as I think people think the CSIRO is. Um, and then, so I left that job about a year ago and was kind of like not sure what I wanted to do next. Um, and then I ended up like there was a PhD opportunity that came up. Um, as Matt said, I've just started. Um, so yeah, I saw, I saw it advertised. It really felt kind of like applying for a job. Um, so, cause it's on an existing project. So I applied and yeah, I've just started that. So I'm not really sure where my path in academia <laughs> leads, but I guess that's uh, w for the next, you know, three to four years, that's the world that I'm, um, re immersed in, although I feel a much less, um, kind of, uh, emotional attachment to it than I once did and much and much less kind of stars in my eyes about the idea of being an academic so yeah anyway um <laughs> that was maybe more information than you you were hoping for Matt <laughs> I think it's like really good to get that kind of perspective and actually being like emotionally disconnected from the idea of being an academic is a really good one yes I like it way better <laughs> my so my background is like so I come from I guess what you describe as a lower class background and for me, a lot of that my university experience was about coming to learn about things I didn't know that I didn't know. So, like, I actually started um, going back. I had to complete a gap year. So, I worked for the City of Melbourne Council um, before I ever went to university. And then in my first year, I went and I thought I would do creative writing. And I did that for a little bit. I think it's actually maybe partially fits into problems around like neoliberalism of the university generally, but I was like, oh, this is not a great thing to learn how to do in a university environment um, because of, I think, like part of the transactional teaching model that now exists. But anyway, I yeah, like yeah, discovered philosophy and I was like, ooh, this shit's awesome. Um, and then from there discovered like political theory and that was like next level again for me. Um, and then I did honours... Um, and looked at like how freedoms conceptualized in measuring democracy um, and for a long time that's been that was like my research area that my PhD was looking at different conceptualizations of freedom but I was really interested in at the time I think a real absence of understanding of the experience of people from a lower class background so like I did my honors project I think was what this makes me feel old but it was in 2012 I took a gap year to save up enough money um, and work out if I wanted to really do a PhD. It's the same thing. Like I was thinking about some of the career prospects. It's like people tell you, oh, it's not that good. Um, it's like actually the, the experience of doing a PhD, particularly in like Australia, um, is really hard. It's in a lot of ways like sink or swim. So I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. Anyway, then I did end up doing my PhD, which I finished in 2018. Um, but through the PhD experience, you really start to get a sense of just how neoliberalized the university experience is. Um, there's like this really, un 
unique position you sit at when you're a PhD student, particularly towards the later years, because you're not quite fully in the faculty yet. And there's a lot of decisions that are going on and things that, that uh, to you are behind closed doors. You don't see those things going on. At the same time, um, you're a part of the teaching process. So you're like employed um, as a generally like precariously employed person. This is where I, I'm getting to why I became interested in precarity. But um, I was interested, yeah, in like the relationship between disadvantage and democracy. And in particular, like using a capabilities approach theory of freedom um so all that like kind of took me towards well actually economics is a really central feature of a democracy and what's going on in a democracy and then looking across different um, societies at what it means to be disadvantaged and then i got into um i guess what i describe as like theories of a welfare state that kind of literature and that really then brought me towards both like the significance of precarity for democracy um, and also the significance of precarity for um, freedom. So they're like kind of interlinked to me. And so then my work now from that point on has been all around that. But it's to me like really interesting to have lived a lot of the stuff that I work on. So like when I write and I'm thinking about what it is like to be casually employed and precariously employed when you don't know if you're going to have a contract in three months, it's because I've done that as a like researcher. That that's like part of your life, um, and yeah, the the kind of experience that like I got through my PhD, and then I was like, if I make it as an academic, great. But actually, you need to be willing to get out because there's not enough jobs in the field, and academia is a kind of like an extraction machine. The way that it operates, it like tries to pull value out of people on a lot of different axes which i think we'll probably get into as we move through the discussion over the rest of the episode um but yeah i guess for me then i went and worked i did a research fellowship at the brotherhood of saint lawrence where i was working on like this the idea of economic dignity um and what does it take to support economic dignity for people and in particular um if we're thinking about a precarious economy that is structurally creating individuals that are atomized, um, indebted, and largely lacking power. What does that do, and how do we improve the? How do we improve our society? And yeah, like then the to me the university is a really interesting site of where we see the the connection of the cultural and the material dimensions of neoliberalism. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, I found that. I'm like the creative writing thing alone is that's like a that could be a whole discussion on its own is the very weird role of these like there's a lot of people out there who want to be a writer um most like if those people make it at all they end up making most of their money out of creative writing uh, teaching creative writing to other people um also the some of the first uh, creative writing courses in Western universities, um, I'm pretty sure this is true, were founded by the CIA in like the Iowa Writers Workshop to like, like, I don't know this full story and it might be just something that's not true that I've like read about, but like to counterbalance like 
don't know, like postmodern literature and like the avant-garde that was like Marxist influence. They were like, we're going to need like a like a realist school of literature to counterweight it. I don't know. I don't know enough about that to like explain no, it. Very like, much on brand. We need to just accuse random institutions of being CIA. Yeah, which they all are, yes. Yeah. Um, we have a quota for that kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, so my background was I um, went and I always desperately wanted to be a writer. So I went, did an arts degree and studied literature and then didn't know what I wanted to do after that and kind of just fell backwards into a PhD because it seemed like I could probably get in and they would uh, pay me. So I wasn't as wise as Joe and then I actually uh, did it, um, didn't finish. And uh, yeah, I ended up um, doing an honours degree at UQ and uh, applied for the literature program at UCID and ended up uh, there for a few years um, trying to work on a PhD thesis about uh, cuckoldry in Shakespeare and spent a lot of time and I kind of didn't pick that topic I kind of just picked that topic I kind of fell into it I was doing something a bit different at first and then worked out it wasn't really working um, and kind of fell into this other kind of broad topic about um, yeah cuckoldry which is this kind of trope in Shakespeare and other like Renaissance theater, which is when your wife um, has sex with someone else, basically, which I could also talk about for a while. But there was kind of... We need to do a show on cucks. <laughs> I, I'll be, honestly, I very easily could. Um, like literally. <laughs> it was such an interesting political phenomenon during like that whole campaign of the, mm-hmm. the, like, the way that the term was thrown around. Sorry, now I'm derailed. <laughs> yeah, there's like a piece that I have like never... I submitted a piece to the baffler a while back which was like about the phenomenon of cucks but they didn't publish it so fuck them they're also run by the cia um is the answer but anyway yeah so there was my experience of doing a phd which is what we're actually here to talk about um was the kind of same thing it was like i had some other like family stuff going on at the time and i'd kind of i'd moved to sydney to do it um and i was very isolated there I didn't know that many people there and then I couldn't I I kind of realized at some point while I was plugging away at it that I found it incredibly difficult to get my head around like how they wanted me to do it like the structure of like not like how they wanted me to think um when I was like thinking critically about a work of literature um and there's, and this is kind of a, a literature thing, right? It would be very different in different fields. Um, but there was this thing that I could never do, which was kind of um, like working all the like available literature and get kind of the density of, like I could never situate my work within this kind of uh, body of criticism that already existed. And I kind of very much felt the whole time like, this is kind of a make like you kind of have to spend a lot of time just like flattering the people who are already in the field and just kind of saying that all of their work is really good and that struck yeah so i eventually i ended up like not being able to um do it for a bunch of reasons and just dropping out eventually um then it left me with this very uh, like a very kind of strange sense of like oh this is something i care deeply about and you know i, I really like Shakespeare and would kind of in theory like to write about him but it seemed very clear to me 
that the university was set up in such a way to make it very inimical to like original work and work that kind of pushed the boundaries of what you were allowed to say while simultaneously pretending that it was actually really open and like really wanted you to be like doing all this kind of like really new and clever stuff but then if you actually tried to do it like and that's fine as long as you do it within these kind of very limited boundaries um yeah and that's kind of one of the things that got me off onto this thing of like yeah, it's it seems to me that a lot of the academic process generates this kind of conversation like a lot of the conversations that we have now have this weird sense to me of like we keep saying the same thing over and over again in like slightly different ways and pretending it's something new like that's this whole this whole cancel this whole cancel culture conversation that we're having now is the same conversation that we've been having for at least a decade probably more with all the exact same people saying the exact same things and yet we're for some reason pretending it's something new the the part that frustrates me the most about that like issue like the 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 repeated same way we talk about cancel culture is there's actually a really interesting part of the debate that is just totally missed and ignored um and that's like the way that um particularly employees that are like precariously employed people this is more in the u.s context like i don't know if you remember amazon firing a guy for trying to organize yeah yeah right but like this this is an area of like um cancel culture that actually like for me as a leftist i have some concerns about like well is it a good idea to let employers arbitrate on what political values people should have generally um and that's actually a much more interesting kind of direction for the debate to go in to talk about well like okay what happens when employers are cancelling people not because they're um putting things that maybe are like publicly controversial but because they run contrary to the business's interests yeah because i think like the reason that's one of the reasons why that's a more interesting thing to talk about is because it connects with something real right like the whole the whole thing about cancel culture is it happens almost entirely in the realm of discourse which can feel very important when you're on twitter all day um but arguably isn't really um so i think like that's maybe like one of the tensions that I feel within academia is yeah the, the the question of whether any of this theorizing and thinking really matters like I think maybe on on the on the show before I've definitely espoused a kind of like get outside sort of politics that mm. um, I've you know in my own life found it immensely liberatory to um, go and like you know talk to people on the ground and get offline um, but you know there is like a more complex relationship between theory and action I don't think it's necessarily useful either to say that theory just kind of exists out there and has no impact on the real world um, and doesn't emerge from it either that's obviously not true either so I don't really know what the relationship is there and how we can theorize more usefully than we're currently doing. I think like though that you're you're that that idea of engaging more with people is actually really important. So like what spurred me in my PhD, I did like mine was kind of transgressive of what a lot of the norms are and you sh- if you are thinking about doing a PhD, do not do what I did, but I cover like a lot of different disciplines and bring them together to talk about the insights they have for each other. Um but a lot of my thinking is actually formed from talking to people, not from like, there's this, I think like bizarre way that academia constructs what we do. 
um, that says that we're engaging specifically in like these really deep um, and and there is like deep structure to what we do a lot of the time. Don't get me wrong, but um, it like kind of pretends that all that influences our work is other people's academic work. And to me, that is like mm-hmm. bullshit and bizarre. Um, something that has like long frustrated me is that um, all my students know this. I, I love talking about this. Kanye West is someone that um, his early music in particular made me really interested in social science. Um, I think he like does a really good job of talking about the experience of um, deprivation and poverty uh, in ways that academics just can't capture, right? Like yeah. you, you go and crunch the numbers and you can illustrate something there, but you, you miss the emotion and, and the like deep emotional resonance that you can connect with people. I can't talk about how Kanye West informs my work in an academic paper. So, like, some of these central ideas might actually be derived from, at least in part, how that has influenced me. But there's no space to be like, okay, this is actually core to the debate. Unless I go and I'm now in the, like, critical or, like, in in a cultural studies, like, space where I'm talking specifically. Like, we'll go over to the side and have a conversation about Kanye West, not oh, this is central to my work as like a quantitative political scientist analysing how we measure democracy. Mm. Um, and that, I think, like fits into part of what you were talking about before, Matt. Yeah, I had a very similar experience. Yeah, like where it's not real unless it's been legitimated through the journal system. Um, and if it's not been published in one of the main journals, then it's not valid and it's not information that you can just bring in. And especially when you're talking about like um you know a work of art there will be just these whole realms of experience whether that be your immediate experience just like you know reading or like watching something or whether this kind of recurring thing in shakespeare where it was like well seemed kind of clear that like the actor's shakespeare was very different to the academic shakespeare um and there would be this whole kind of realms that were very obviously part of the thing but that was structurally very different difficult even though everyone knew they were there to actually bring up in the written work um and yeah like it was just very weird how you couldn't say all this obvious stuff yeah it's it's weird and it like i think it's to, to the great detriment of what we talk about um in in academia and yeah it's like it's really interesting too that like I've talked to other academics about my like deep interest in not just like Kanye West I love like hip-hop there's a couple of artists that are really important to me and um, I teach a subject on doing research methods and I get to play like a song of one of my favorite artists as like part of my lecture Um, but there's just not enough of this like engagement with the whole person when we're thinking about Mm. their work which I think maybe is part of what kind of gives rise to the culture of vicious personal cruelty that I mentioned earlier. Mm. I mean, that's like, yeah, like, like in most workplaces, I suppose, um, people in the academy are you know, seen as kind of automations, but there's a, there's a weird extra layer of something going on there where I guess like, because so many people are like, you know, intensely devo- devoted to their subject, like this is supposed to be something that you chose to do because this was your life's passion, I guess. Um, there's like a whole lot of layer of emotions that layer on top of the, of the usual. Um, but I was going to ask you, Jeremiah, about kind of, so thinking about like 
the neoliberal university, like the shift towards neoliberalism within universities. How do you see that happening? How's like the role of the university evolved that way? In particular, I guess, um, in terms of uh, the precarity of many academic workers, because it used to be that, you know, if you got a, if you managed to, to get a PhD and get a career in academia, you're pretty much set up. Um, I feel like the, the whole rise of what's called adjuncting in the US and here is, you know, casual teaching um, and short-term research contracts uh, is in a way quite a new thing. I don't know. Am I right about that? Yeah. So my understanding is it's like a practice that's grown over time. I actually like, I'm not well read on the full, like the, the origin points of it, but I know, yeah, like from the US perspective, it's actually also like bleeds across. So like in the US, often part of a PhD program involves a teaching component, but that's not paid teaching. That's part of your just like help, like that's part of your training. Yeah, you like you're meant to do that as kind of part of paying for your scholarship, quote unquote. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and and so like that has become the, I guess what I would describe as like cheap or free intellectual labor is like long been known to be a part of like academia. I mean, if we go back in time, it's the, the number of scholars who we see that actually their wife or their partner has been like a key contributor to the ideas that are central to their thinking. Um, and we, pr- pr- I guess we like construct this idea of the objective individual um, who somehow has, has done the thinking themselves alone. Like we have an, an acknowledgement section, but um, it's it doesn't acknowledge the deeper co- contacts that that person's had. And then now in the... Um, the, the current context, like Melbourne universities, like 70% of the teaching workforce is casual um, contract employees. And it's like progressed over time. Part of it is tied to the, um, the way that the universities are funded, which is a really bizarre mix of like, it's largely government funding. And then you win like research grants. Um, it has this like deep edge of neoliberal competition to it where like you've got to go and apply for all these grants and they're judged by someone else who we regard them as neutral like they're on the research council or whatever so they're they're credentialed but um often like the go go and look through like twitter on the day that arc feedback comes out and there's a lot of people that are pretty upset. I was just going to say that because the I think the DECRA um, results were announced a few weeks ago, and I, I did yeah. notice. Yeah, a lot of people were saying like, "Wow, um, I can't believe how mean these people are." Basically. Yeah, yeah, it's like quite. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot of problems with academia, right? Like, um, but but one of them is I think like part of it is the way we give feedback, um, and and part of that is like it can be tar- like quite targeted in, in the way that people are criticized. So it's not just like, oh, um, there's there's something missing here. And, and I think like we're not actually properly trained in how to give feedback. No one ever, like when I was doing my PhD, sat me down and said, okay, this is how you review a journal article. These are all the things you need to go through to do that. There's like loose guidelines you can pick up from somewhere, but it's actually like all of the rest of academia, work it out yourself. Mm, and I think there's kind of a feedback loop there because, you know, you expect to be so viciously criticised and attacked. Um, you, you know, you jump on the opportunity to do it to somebody else, possibly. <laughs> yeah, like, um, there's this real culture of, like, working alone. Like, that's one of the things I really noticed. You see it as everyone would 
all of the teachers would just kind of go and like work out what they were going to teach and there was very little kind of collaboration there was a very strong kind of expectation that you would either already know how to do everything or that you would be able to work it out for yourself very quickly and there was a real sense of like they were generally quite confused by the idea that like you could actually like work together in any sort of like broad collective way or that even like you as a department should share an interest and that you should like have a common goal and that like you should bring like new people into that common goal and like give them the skills like like teaching or like reviewing or like yeah um and instead it's just like a I've, it's very careerist so it's very much seems to be built on this like ruthlessly competitive model where everyone's just trying to like establish their brand and like figure out what their like their academic thing that they work on is so they can like you know like every, every kind of academic has like a rehearsed like oh yeah this is what i work on like this is my thing so that they can um you know tell it to people at parties and so they can build a kind of brand around that and so that they can get funding and like get the journal articles and yeah um, yeah they, um, they call it yeah. like what's your elevator pitch for your thesis when you're doing your phd right and it's like well hang on like i mean for me it's a pretty like it was a pretty easy sell of like oh i look at like freedom and democracy and how the two are connected um but if you're doing something that's like deep and complex that's not actually easy to do and so i actually think that like the the structures that we have in this like system link into um, studying particular phenomena in particular ways, right? Because, like, if something is deeply complex, you can't get to that deep and gnarly complexity in a 5,000-word journal article. You just can't do it. Um, and so then what we talk about in academia becomes the neat slices we can make that fit into the journal articles. And you have to learn how to... to turn whatever it is that you're interested in into those things and then like you know some spaces it's fine you if you're writing like monographs or books but if what you're doing is like really deeply multidisciplinary that becomes really hard to do like to make sure that you've covered all the bases of what you're like constructing that was a real problem for me when i was like um, doing my phd and even now like communicating some of the stuff that i'm interested in it's like okay well like if i'm going to properly talk about all the things that are in this paper um, I've like kind of think about whatever I'm writing in terms of how much space I'm allowed to have. Um, so like if it's a 6,000 word journal article, then at most you can really only have, a, a, ignoring all the analysis that's in there, you can probably only talk about two concepts because it's going to take you like a thousand words to actually cover off the relevant literature so you don't look like an idiot. Um, and then also explain the concept in detail and then if they're linked to each other there's another like thousand words where you've got to explain the relationship to them or between them and it just quickly you're like oh cool i've got like 200 words for analysis here great that's like that's it um yeah that's the thing i honestly one of the biggest things that i struggle with and this is something that i think is very clear to anyone who is not in academia but completely invisible to anyone who is entrenched in it is just the way that you have to write, which is incredibly formally constrained and incredibly um, like wordy, um, incredibly like, because you really do, you have to spend a thousand words just like covering all of your bases and just like name checking all these people and then really clearly kind of explaining like what you're 
doing and where you're coming from and the end result is that you've you know you will get whole books that are just ultimately expressing some very simple concepts um and really stuff that you could almost do in a tweet but then like you've got like it's really not optional that you spend all this time doing it um and yeah i think that makes uh academic thought just more conservative and just less willing to kind of take risks and go in new directions because like you it's just easier to express something that people kind of already understand. So what is like, the, I don't know, this is kind of a big question, but what are the me- mediums that would be better? Like, how do you, I guess, how do you, um, either you understand like a truly kind of radical or um, like more useful way of um, theorizing or expressing these ideas? Is there such a thing? Is it Twitter? <laughs> to, to me, so twi- Twitter is like too, too reduced to boil down, I think, at times. But I, like, I, I'm upfront about this. I actually tell my students, I would rather listen to a podcast with an author on a topic than read their journal article on the same thing. Um, yeah, 100%. Like, you, you get a much clearer description of what they think is central. Like, one thing that, is, to me, is, like, upsetting in, in the way the written word doesn't just carry the same emphasis on like key ideas like you know when when a word is like stressed you, you pick that up immediately but you read a paper it's in monotone like you've got a couple of things you can do like italics or bold something but um they're like also not very commonly used features uh but when people talk about stuff actually it really becomes clear w- what they're trying to say um and in your own words i think matters quite a lot um, as opposed to being forced into a lot of the structures of academia um, and, and the jargon that comes along with a lot of areas, like particularly like social theory. Some of the, the wording when it's written in particular is like incredibly complex. Um, and part of it is because you can't stress the words in the same ways when you're, as when you're like talking about it. But if you talk about it, you can like, you know, put emphasis on particular things and people can like understand without having to create some new word to explain the idea. You can like you can express uncertainty as well, which you can't do in like a journal article. You can't say, "Oh, I don't know." Yeah, a hundred percent. It's like um, I was actually we were talking in my team um, a couple of days ago about the idea of like people just generally in uh, like this is like dealing with like kind of quantitative analysis in some areas, but people are unwilling to present nuanced and, and skepticism of, of whatever they're actually doing. So like it ends up you're like writing about a paper that or an analysis that you've done and instead of being like, well, I mean like given we've only got this thing and um, there's these like limitations with it, we can tentatively say this thing about it. Instead it's like, well, we did the thing and this is what we found out. Yeah, I think that's like one of the more interesting things that I discovered um, working at CSIRO, um, and I wouldn't be surprised if there are certain areas of academic research that are the same, is that there's almost like a kind of um, fetishizing of information for information's sake. Like um, when I was working at CSIRO, we often, like they just wanted an answer. They didn't really care if the answer was correct or meaningful or useful. And often we would just like, in making a certain point, we'd have to end up citing a report that we our own team had written like a few years earlier um just because we needed to cite something even though like the the earlier report didn't have anything like more 
like that didn't really carry much weight. Um, so yeah, I feel like there's a there's a real there is definitely a reluctance to be like I don't know we we don't really we don't or maybe we don't know yet or like it's it's more nuanced. We're just like no, you've got to like slot this answer into this box and make it work. And I think that's like linked as well to like a general lack of critical thinking, mm. like that we, we we kind of encourage people to not think critically. Um, and I think like our news media generally just shows like no critical thinking so much of the time, mm. like people should stop retweeting how Andrew Boulder said something terrible. Right. Cause like actually his, his disin, like he's disingenuous about what he's doing. Um, he's generating like rage about something so that people will respond to it. Maybe you should move away from like this, this model of just respond, you know, like people just constantly responding to mm. Right-wing idiots saying something and then going like, "Oh well, I have to like have to put them in their place. Got to own yeah. them." It's a take factory. <laughs> the take factory demands gross. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kind of insidious though, because a lot of this, like these incentives to not think critically, it's masked as like a call for more critical thinking. Like no one ever says, "I'm against critical thinking. Don't do it." They're always like, no, I'm the I'm the guy who wants the critical thinking. All of my opponents, they just want you to listen to just spout their mindless dogma. But me, I want you to think critically in exactly this way. And then all like the actual incentives are like like, no, don't ask questions. Like like of course one of the things that, you know, I kept coming up against is of course universities kind of know this stuff. They're just not gonna do anything about it. So like they're not gonna you know, if you ask them, they'll say, well, of course, like, we want you to do critical thinking, but then there'll be an incentive structure that's like, okay, but like, act, like, actually don't. And that's kind of harder for me to deal with. And yeah. Yeah. Well, the, or the critical thinking part is like often it's a very narrow contribution at the end. Like mm. I, I've marked hundreds of essays um, and a lot of them actually, it's like one of the subjects that I've, is like a key feature of what I've taught is called applied research methods. And that's like statistics for art students. And I used to tell all my students the same thing. My favorite section to read in that was the discussion, right? Because like the numbers are only meaningful through the prism of which you interpret them, whatever they are. Um, and like people just will regurgitate a statistic and not actually talk about, okay, well, what are the, what's the definition that underpins that? How have you measured this thing? Um, I think like, I mean, my, my entire PhD was driven by what I thought was like an absence of critical thinking in how we measured democracy. We weren't defining the concepts in ways that meaningfully aligned with like our normative definitions of what would make democracy valuable. And then we weren't measuring freedom in a way that was coherent with how a lot of people would think what it is to actually be free. So then there's this like oh we we went and i would read uh, like what spurred me to write my phd was reading someone's book on something i won't name the scholar but i just like read it and they were kind of saying like democracy is fine in the world but people are skeptical of democracy what's wrong with the people not like maybe there's problems with our democracy and the measures that say that it's good might not be good measures of democracy um, and so there's like that same kind of absence of critical thinking across heaps of different areas. If you just go and look for it. Um, yeah, I've seen some like great takes out on the world and like, oh, like it's the people are at fault. Like not like why are people rejecting democracy? Like what's wrong with them that they don't understand? Like they don't 
want to have a voice it's and very they're dangerous. saying that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess one of the other questions we wanted to dig into um, is the kind of political economy of the university and particularly like this kind of massive expansion of access to tertiary education um, in the 1990s. So one of the notes that you made, Matt, on the show plan is that, you know, historically the university was this instrument of the ruling class. So what happens when you try to make everyone go to it? Like it's, you know, the degree is kind of the minimum these days to to get, you know, a quote unquote decent middle class job. So I guess like how do you see that playing out and in particular like when we're talking about maybe postgraduate degrees and um, yeah, PhDs, master's degrees, like, it, you know, there, there seems to be in many ways um, a shortfall of jobs, as you mentioned. So are we just training people up for career paths that no longer really exist? Yeah. Like, I, yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, like I only kind of half understand this, but there seems to be this phenomenon of degree creep where like there's been a huge expansion in who can, go to university now there's this expectation that everyone has to go to university now like the masters is the new bachelors the phd is the new masters that does not seem to me to be going anywhere good um what's the deal with that um that well i mean like i i think like part of the deal actually is um what what you do when you go to university actually is in some ways buying into the neoliberal system, you're acquiring a bunch of debt, you precaritize yourself um, so that you can participate in the system. Um, that production of precarity then, like when you take on student debt, doesn't matter which, like, I mean, the, the debt does vary by country. It's not onerous to functioning in Australian society to have like a, a student debt, but it is like in some ways onerous to your long-term financial prospects, right? Like we still, before we can really earn a decent income and do the things like acquire a house um you you need to pay off your student loans and it's kind of psychologically onerous as well i mm. think particularly um for a lot of working class people like the idea of going into debt is very very not good yeah oh yeah it's like but it's also because debt functions very differently across like not just different class groups but different income groups debt like is really interesting that um the like often people that are more higher income have a higher like ratios of debt than people that are on a lower income but it's the way that that debt functions in their life so like mm. if you if you're um yeah if, like surviving paycheck to paycheck the debt that you pay is like and the debt that you hold often is like credit card debt so it's really expensive to service it and when you service that debt it's not actually getting you anywhere it's just value being extracted from you if you're much more wealthy, though, you might still have debt, but the debt that you have and the debt that you're, I mean, you're partially servicing the debt because you'll be paying off interest or something on like property, but you're buying a house. So it's like contributing to overall your long-term positive prospects, not you're scrambling to get back just to zero, um, which is what a lot of people are doing when they're you know in a lower income group. Um, so there's like this production of precarity. Now, the US has it like on steroids with how large their student debt is and the kinds of reclaims that that are happening to people. So the expectations around paying. But it puts people in a position where they're through your whole, like through your 20s, instead of actually being able to take out time at any stage and really establish yourself in a career and be like, okay, what do I really want to do? What, what is like the core role that I want and what might be the exact skills? 
you're expected to anticipate the skills for the job that you think you want, then go and train for that. You're now indebted so that you can go and be in this industry to repay back that debt. So it's like 10 years for a lot of people before they're even close to paid back down. And at that point, you're in the neoliberal system now and you're just packaging on further and further um, more more like debt. We live in a debt society. It's like really great. Yeah, I love it. I love society. It's, I often think about that like meme, you know, the um, you have taken on debt like debt, yet you resist neoliberalism <laughs> what are you doing you know the the, the like ah you eat food oh uh, yeah mm. curious yeah, yeah. <laughs> you must be very intelligent <laughs> yeah um and i think like i guess what, one of the things i also wanted to to talk about was that the way in which not only you know you enter the the university so you enter this kind of neoliberal education system um in the ways that you've described but that also manifests itself in the sort of um, on the ground experience of oh, being on campus, I 100%. guess. Um, yeah, I feel like I, so I, I did my undergraduate, when would I have started? Um, 2009, fuck. Okay, um, and I was on campus for roughly, say, five years. Um, and then now I'm back. And I really noticed a difference even between those two periods. Like, um, I, and I've been to the same the same university, UQ, the whole time. But I feel like when I was there as an undergrad, it was kind of the, maybe the last gasp of a real, what could be termed a student culture. Um, and there was still like kind of dank little pockets of student life and, um, you know, different kinds of collectives and the um, food co-op on the bottom level of the union building that gave, like, served things that definitely were not um, according to um, health and safety laws. But like now it's just very, very um, slick uh, shopping mall sort of feeling on campus and I think from what I can tell a lot of students approach um, education in, in this way like uh, kind of as a product to be consumed um, so, you know something they're paying for and potentially I mean I'd like to discuss the way teaching um, and learning is shifting online particularly like the I think the recent pandemic has accelerated all of those processes but I feel like a lot of students almost like their ideal world is to have all the lectures online so they never have to go into campus so they can kind of like do it all at home and I mean that's just the the, the yeah that current kind of cultural shift is really cutting out a lot of the what it used to mean at least to to be a student or to engage um yeah with education like, like that yeah I agree you like UQ does feel very different to me as well like even just going in now compared to when I was there whenever it was uh I don't know, I think 10 years ago at this point. But yeah, like, I agree. There's like a different like atmosphere. Yeah, it's like there's this been this shift from um, like now you would describe education doesn't really like it's funny that you described like UQ in that way. Um, a lot of those like things you were saying resonated from my experience as a student versus how I think about my students' experience. I've like, I did my undergrad at Melbourne and now like have taught there for a number of years. Um, but yeah, it's like a transition from the experiential like that's to me like my education was an experience in provoking like critical mm -hmm. thinking much more now where it is very transactional there's a lot a lot of the things that kept me on campus like i used to drink beers all the time with my mates on south lawn which is like a nice pretty lawn in the middle of melbourne university you can't really drink on campus now you need like approval little things like that so that kept me mm -hmm. on campus 
when I was like a first and second year student because it was fun. And I talk about the stuff that I've been doing in my tutorials because like it was interesting and, you know, like questions of philosophy can be like thought provoking and everyone has an opinion on them. So like you talk it out and you actually start to really dig into a variety of different perspectives. When you just go to class, complete your lesson, go home, you lose all those conversations that actually like to me, there's no way I'd, I'd probably even would have made it as like into a PhD if it wasn't for all those like conversations. To me, like conversation stimulates my thinking, but like I'm like not actually a very good reader. So like I find it difficult to read more than like a chapter or a paper at a time. And like by the end of the day, my brain's cooked. So if you like had of, if I had have been forced to just literally read through everything for my degree, do it all on my own steam. There's no way that I would have learned how to do that properly. Yeah, that's interesting you mentioned that because I feel like my first year of university was basically marked by trying to drink beers while being underage. <laughs> Something that was like still possible then because you could go to the pizza cafe and, um, you know, you'd sit at a table with your friends and then your your friend who was 18 or over would get up and order a jug of beer for the table. Um, now they ask for everyone's IDs um, when you order drinks at a table. Um, and I also remember like sneaking in um, through the back door of the pub on campus, which um, the alarm was I never broken. Did that. Yeah, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, I, I only did it once, um, but it did work, and because um, that was my first year of uni, my birthday's in August, so I didn't turn, uh, and all my friends were eighteen. It was anyway. So, but what strikes me about those experiences and your mention of like drinking beer on the lawn is it kind of ruptures in how the university wants to exist like now um when i'm on campus i notice like the university is much more present in the sort of day-to-day -day, um interactions or or movements of of students around campus like there's a lot of diff there's like outdoor study hubs they've set up on um, a lot of the lawns uh and there's like all these little um university organized things i guess like little stores little kiosks um libraries open 24 7 that sort of thing um so in a way like they're what they're trying to do is make more opportunities for gatherings, but only in these kind of quite controlled, um, surveilled, approved spaces. Whereas I think kind of what we were saying before is the really interesting stuff happens outside those spaces. I'd forgotten about this, but I like, I did have one tutor who like we all got drunk in the last class, um, <laughs> which was definitely like a we were not supposed to do and I was underage and it was a massive crime <laughs> now that I think about it but like I'm pretty sure he just brought in like a goon sack or something and we all got pissed on the last day so that would never happen these days <laughs> yeah and we should I was a long long proponent of the um a pint with your students on the um like last class for um more than just like the there's actually like you should eradicate like so you, you keep a, a barrier between yourself as an educator and your students in part because like you you don't want to be too involved with them but um i actually think it's like good practice to offer a more informal context to talk about um and because a lot of the subjects that i teach are either to um, people that are masters and looking at potentially doing a phd or they're doing like their honors um, or it's the last subject of their degree in their undergraduate it's like creating an informal space for people where you can tell them about a lot of the structural features of academia is actually really important because some people don't understand or don't know about how horrible some of the conditions are, like the um, precarity, the lack of job prospects. 
um, that if you talk about that sort of stuff in the classroom, you have to do it in lieu of talking about content. So like you're trading off stuff there and I'll, I'll still happily talk to people about that. But um, yeah, so like that kind of informal space after class to talk to students, I think is like quite important um, and increasingly like is being lost. Um, it's kind of, you get better interact, I guess what I'd describe as better interactions with like your honors and master's students in that like the university will often provide formally like spaces where you can talk to them outside of class. Um, they often like if you uh, that one of the subjects I teach is an intensive so after the intensive you have like a sort of evening like a kind of like what do you call it um, I'm bad at words um, but you have like a, a like evening session with them like where you just have like finger foods and stuff and have a chat and like that that can be really helpful for them to ask informal questions that people feel uncomfortable about asking in a classroom because there is a really like structured dynamic between you yeah that like that is a, like, it's a really difficult thing of being able to break down that dynamic and, like, getting people to not feel policed is really important. So getting, like, yeah, like, but also, unfortunately, you are in a position where you'll be literally assessing them. Yeah, like, I don't know, when, like, I remember when I was uh, teaching, I only really taught one class and I, like, had very little experience teaching and was kind of just like thrown into it so that was a very disorienting um experience i feel like i don't know i yeah i guess i don't know that much about um how teaching generally works beyond my experience of doing it but it does feel like there wasn't a lot of training um and there wasn't you know, I was just kind of put in charge of a class of students without the um, experience and the background to actually do a really good job of it. Yeah, yeah. It's like a just-in-time teaching model in some ways. So a lot of subjects, it's like people will be teaching it. Um, and if you're the tutor, you're someone who's like applied for the role. If it's the first time you're teaching it, you won't know all of the, like might not know all the course content <laughs> before you've taught the subject. Which is insane. Yeah, right. Like <laughs> it's it's genuinely insane. The, the whole model, there's like this veneer of um, you're presented as like a deep expert by the university to the like the person who comes in for their like um, to, to be trained as a student. But actually, there's like all these um, things going on behind the scenes that that aren't visible to students. Um, and like yeah. we, we like even one of the, like the most basic things is, tutors usually aren't paid to go to lectures on a subject so they like a student or like a tutor won't know what has been said in the lecture um when they're teaching the student um it's a really basic thing but it means that there's inconsistencies in the ideas and how you're communicating them again like it's yeah. fine if you're providing diverse perspectives but if you don't know that, that that's the way the other perspectives constructed it can be like really harmful to the teaching experience yeah when i um like, when I taught, I would go to the lecture, and that would be, like, the first I was hearing about it. Like, you know, and then I would, ha like, I would know very little beforehand about what was going to be taught in the class. I would know, like, the name of the relevant author and have, like, a couple of sentences on it. And then I would go to the lecture unpaid and listen to that. And then I would have an hour before the tutorial and I'd go and look them up on Wikipedia. And I had enough of a basis of knowledge in like early modern literature 
to be able to do a reasonably good impression of it but like i'm not most of the time it was like i'm not an expert like and you know i was being presented to these students as if i was like an expert in these people and there was this general and i found very stressful expectation that i would be an expert despite the fact that like there was no reason that i would know everything about like some of these people who i was reading for the first time um and i found it very dishonest and very bad for the students and bad for me and just bad for the whole practice of teaching in general and um yeah like the only merit of it is that it saves them the university time and money i think um so we're up to about an hour i reckon like um Maybe for the last little bit, I, I want to talk more about the way um, that, like, one of your talking points, Matt, um, is the way the university kind of shapes the left. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. As yeah. much as I kind of dislike that term, but um, as you kind of pointed out at the top of the show, the the most reliable group of left voters are those people with degrees, and then, in you know, generally, the more advanced your degree is, the more the more left you get. Um, and this is kind of a reversal of uh, how historically. Um, voting has kind of mapped out, you know, um, social democratic parties, uh, you know, historically appealed to, uh, to working class voters, but now are appealing to middle class ones. So I guess the interesting question that arises from this is how does it affect the the internal culture of the left that so many of our ideas are formed in this academic context? Um, and I think we have spoken a bit about what I see as like the, the main danger here, which is that we get further and further away from real people um, and further into this kind of like realm of hard theory. Um, and like I said, I don't think that theory exists separate to the material world. There's obviously like a dialectic and an interplay there, but um, it can be like, it's very easy to lose sight of that. I think the further you get into academia. So I'm interested to hear both your, your thoughts about, about that. And also, yeah, the more general implications of having such an academic constant concentration within left-wing politics. Um, yeah, like, and like, I also think that it's not that, like, it's not that, like, working class people, like, can't understand theory or that they have, like, no use for this artsy-fartsy nonsense. That's, like, not true. It's that the stuff we're developing, it's, like, a lot of the time, I think, because our ideas are kind of built up in this, um, like, primarily to serve, like, the career for some, I don't know I guess what I think uh first is that there's not a real culture of internal criticism in the university a lot of the time like a lot of stuff kind of gets it they kind of just let stuff slide because there's no real incentive to interrogate something carefully about whether it's actually true or not I mean there, um, there's a variety of different ways in which there's there's barriers to challenging the ideas that are present in you right like part of it is um so like i'm a pre pretty like progressive in where i sit on the political spectrum um actually though you can be like collegial and talk to people that are less progressive than you and mm. i think that like um on online um in some ways people are like de definitely um at times in a good way, are like hypercritical of things, but sometimes as well, like it's actually really bad. 
um, to just go militantly after someone who doesn't really understand an issue that well or doesn't hold particularly firm views on it. People, when they're pressed on their views, often, like, harden them. But it's I think it's, like, about how you have that conversation. I think that, like, I've... I've um, yeah, been, like, been really deliberate when I talk to people about, like, academic stuff um, and, like, fr- things from, like, my degree. When I go home to, like, I'm from, like, a rural Victoria and when I go home, I talk to people in terms that they don't need to have, quote-unquote, done the reading to be able to understand the ideas. And, like, you you can make those things accessible, um, but one of the things that universities do, like, and, and some scholars do to protect themselves is to make their work almost impenetrable. There's like a great quote, I think it's like Foucault, who's like, someone says to him, when I talk to you, and I can fully understand what you're saying and it makes perfect sense, but when I read your writing, I have no idea what you're saying. And and Foucault's like, yeah, well, that's because I want to get published. Um, (laughs) Right? Like, yeah. Yeah, that explains a lot of Foucault. Yeah, but it's like (laughs) these, we, we make these ideas overly complex for the sake of, ensure it like well i had to be smart to say something this impenetrable don't i um instead of like making our ideas accessible and easy to read and i think like and and that's i mean um none of this obviously is to say that like people without degrees can't understand theory or whatever but i think it's just a universal truth like i was reading a book uh recently for my phd with you know and it was just an academic book um chapters by different authors and most of them were, yes, yeah, st- stock standard academic writing, like very hard to get through, basically. Uh, and one author had obviously like made the concerted choice that he was going to write in straightforward, non-jargony language. And I still remember exactly what he said in his chapter. I could tell you what it was about, the arguments he was making. I could not tell you any of that for the rest of the book. So there's just like a basic level. And, and I, I don't know why, but everyone seems um, determined to pretend that like that's not a problem. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like... That's it's we're in this position where like because academia is kind of on its surface in some ways very progressive, and so we've got all these ideas that are kind of ostensibly very demo- democratic and very focused on like minority voices and but like being expressed in this very anti-democratic elite way that's designed to keep people out, um, and then yeah, this real again internal reluctance to acknowledge it um people just won't accept that contradiction right. like we we i think like i mean i i don't like the the general term cancel culture um and and i was talking before about like some of those issues it's really uncomfortable to talk about things like we're made to feel uncomfortable in our society talking about things you don't know that much about in a vacuum that's like not a problem um like you know actually we, we shouldn't just let people, you know, spout Nazi bullshit and then go, oh, yeah, well, like, I mean, we need to re-educate you. Sometimes you need to call, like, a fascist a fascist. But at the same time, for people that are kind of fumbling through complex, like, issues, they actually need, we need to, like, you know, talk through those problems and a kind of culture that is, like, hyper-aggressive about when someone's wrong can be really toxic to actually really then exploring ideas which again like if if you're talking about let's go like extreme fascism here um that that's not like a very interesting thing to explore but when they're actually like you know tricky moral problems um that people are encountering uh, like to to me like one of the quintessential problems like this 
was whether to attend the um, Black Lives Matter rally or not. Um, that That's actually like a complex, like moral issue to think through. Um, and, and it's very specific to the circumstances of where you are, right? Like it's quite, it's quite a different thing to risk, um, sp- like r- regardless, like I, I don't actually truck the argument that it's going to, you know, like spread it or anything like that spread coronavirus. But the point is that like, there's actually a real moral problem there. Um, but people were kind of in some areas, like just yelled at for even suggesting maybe there's a moral yeah. problem here. Now, we actually should have a nuanced discussion about that instead of um, this. Like, we we need to be able to discuss and trade off different moral issues against each other. But when people are so hard to it and, and attacking on certain things, it becomes really difficult to actually nut out what we should do around those, like, and and resolve those issues. Yeah, it becomes that thing of um, you know, I feel like something you see often on. The- um, the progressive side of politics is the statement, I'm not, I'm no longer explaining X or I'm not going to explain what I mean by Y, um, which to me just seems like possibly the worst <laughs> turn. It's just like, yeah, like I was certainly thinking about this a lot um, in the context of abolishing the police, which I've been, you know, doing the reading about. Um, and there's, a, yeah, there's a case for it and a case against it. Um, it's, you know, abolishing the police is an unpopular position. Most people don't want to do it. Um, and they're not insane for not wanting to do it. There's, like, actual, like, really solid questions around how, about how would that work that we have to answer, like, and that I don't think they've done a great job in answering, although there is a body of literature that attempts to answer these questions, like, about okay like what do we do with all the murderers all that kind of stuff like it is a sufficiently complex question that we do have to take these seriously i i think that ultimately like i think that we do have to listen to like conservative criticisms of the left right like i think that's the best way to understand like what we're doing wrong in a lot of yeah, cases yeah well they're winning so you know yeah obviously. exactly they're winning like the foundation of like of part of my thesis is based in the idea of value pluralism and like um so it's exploring competing conceptions or definitions of freedom and what i would say is that different people will subscribe to different definitions of freedom this is just like one example amongst a host of others but they'll subscribe to different definitions based off part of it is their own lived experience but um, a set of prior conditions that are commitments that they have that are values that they believe in Um, sometimes people are disingenuous when they present criticism ideas that's maybe when we should like disregard what they've got to say Um, but actually it's really important to to get to the foundation of why someone holds a particular view if you're in, like if you're engaging in a proper debate with them so often we talk superficially about um, the like the, the the issue at at hand without getting to the deeper what is the underlying commitment or the principle that is driving you to hold this position right so when we talk about um, the cancel culture and the letter that came out recently the principle that they like put out is that free speech is essential to um, a, a democracy. Okay, well, like, what do you mean by free speech? 
give co- like concrete examples if you like if you're having a genuine debate about this and what is so central to like free speech are there certain kinds of free speech that we won't tolerate um but if you want to have this debate tell me exactly why like what the foundation is and like if if your like view is just that it's a, a general good okay well we're not going to get anywhere but if you tell me i think that we should trade off like free speech for a material harm to someone like if we know that um letting someone engage in hate speech does have like it it does incite people into violence well now we can it's actually easier in some ways to have a debate about that because you're you're talking to like okay well why are you favoring one thing rather than another and you can sometimes persuade people when you get to the crux of why they favor this thing and you put them in a position where you're saying like well you would trade that off for this other thing. And sometimes people will have, like hold contrasting views on this. When uh, To go back to like different definitions of freedom, you can't convince someone to dislodge from their position if it's based on their lived experience. Like, you're not going to convince them that their yeah. lived experience is invalid. Totally. Yeah. And I think, like, yeah, we're maybe getting to a, like one of the answers to the questions that I posed, which was, you know, how does this experience of being so... Um, so a kind of academic influence left politics. And I think maybe one answer is this paradox of um, being so wrapped up in ideas that you can no longer really explain ideas or engage with ideas. Like ideas come to stand for something in and of themselves and, and sort of don't um, need to be, or, you know, the, the view is that they don't need to be further explained. Um, there's almost a taboo against explaining or digging in or critiquing. If ideas are also your product, like they're, oh yeah, they're an idea, but they're also the thing that you're selling on the marketplace. Mm. So like, oh, that's like, because one of the things is that the people who most go in, the people who are like, yeah, we need free speech, we need debate, we need to listen to each other. A lot of those people are being very disingenuous and like they have in fact no intention of actually doing that. That's just their new brand on the marketplace. Like a lot of the people who signed those le- that letter they're not gonna like there's a whole range of opinions that they would be very quick to cancel but like yeah and i think that's yeah i I just think it's because yeah like there are like structural reasons that we don't just have like an open debate like it's not just a matter of us like lacking virtue it's not just a thing of like oh like oh we just too afraid of other things no there's like in like actual like structural and like economic reasons that like why we've kind of ended up ended up at this impasse one of the things that i think is really interesting is that largely actually now social media and particularly like twitter drives a lot of our like public debate um and twitter's a really interesting space for a number of reasons but i think the number one reason in the context of neoliberalism is that identity is visible but materiality is not. So, like, you have so many um, people who signed that lit letter, right, all fit under the banner of, like, highly wealthy. Um, they they actually, like, some of them are different on to, in terms of, like, some of the ideas they might support versus not. Um, but the the central feature, like, that they do tend to share in common there is, is their material position. But it's not a material position that is immediately visible. So when you read this, like, list... Of people you're like oh it's a diverse like spectrum of people who've come from all these different organizations there's no consideration of like oh okay 
materiality is a central feature of what they have in common here. Um, one of my favourite anecdotes about uh, Zizek is once he was giving a, well, he was on a panel, I think, and they said, all right, before we start the panel, we're going to go around and everyone has to say like what their sexuality is, like what their sexual preferences are. And he was like, I think we should just go around and say how much each of us earns every year. <laughs> and like, what does it say that that's so much more taboo than, than saying what your sexuality is? Yeah, right. Like, it's really interesting um, that, that whole feature of like this cultural taboos, but like talking about money, whoa. Yeah. I think he also then just said, I like to fuck animals. <laughs> like that was his answer to the sexuality question. Zach is, a, <laughs> is a strange cat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's very weird. Um, so I think we're just about at time. We probably have time for some closing thoughts. Um, yeah, Jerry, did you have anything you wanted to uh, mention that you haven't yet? Um, I guess just like that idea that, um, that Twitter is driving us towards increasingly identitarian based conflicts between the left and the right, like a space where materiality is not so visible changes the dynamics of what you talk about, um, and as a society, we haven't, I think, established sufficiently a way to get around that. And, I mean, we, we we keep seeing, like, some conversations around inequality, but I think they're at times stymied by the gap between... Like, when I see an avatar on, like, come into my Twitter feed, I'm, I, put, like, make a kind of judgment about the person, but it's not really tied to their, like, material position. That's not a thing that I'm, like, often thinking about. Whereas, like, I can make really easy identitarian-based, like, positioning of that person often off, like, what their avatar is and or what they, like, their, their name is. And that, I think, is, like, something that if we want to overcome neoliberalism in the way that it atomizes people and um, it really, like, turns us all into our own brands, we need to overcome this, like, distinction between and the absence of visibility of materiality in online spaces. Mm. Matt, did you want to... Well, there was the... Yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff in the notes that we, like, didn't get to talk about. Um, Just, like, the way that... Yeah, like, the coronavirus is, like, destroying the income of universities and, like, the international student market. And then the coalitions attacks on funding um and it's like the role of the university in the uh conservative imagination is really interesting to me is they think it's this like radical lefty anti-western space that's like corrupting all the kids and that's why they are cutting its funding even more um i think i've talked about that on a previous episode when i talked about the ramsey center but that's yeah like that's a whole thing like just you know mentioning the things that uh, we didn't get to talk about here. And then, yeah, the one thing I would kind of come back to is this thing to me of, like, it's not just a case that, like, we lack virtue. It's not, like, this stuff gets said in universities. I remember being at an event once at UCID, which is on this topic, actually. It was a, a whole presentation that had been scheduled with all these PhD students and, like, all these professors and, like, the dean was, was there. And it was on the neoliberal university. And it was like, oh, how do we deal with the neoliberal university? And, you know, they went through and, like, described all of these things and were like, yeah, those are problems. And then just, like, went back to their jobs and changed nothing. And I've been to, like, lots of those, like... I've been to more than one event exactly like that. So it's clearly not like we're in this situation where, yeah, like people kind of know this is a problem, but the underlying like 
there are, are reasons that they can't do anything about it and because of the way that the like the market and the funding and like these you know there's kind of the economic base of it that actually kind of yeah like it's it's not just a matter of bringing in new ideas we do need like a new way that the university works and i yeah i kind of yeah. i'd say to that matt that the people who hold power in these institutions um, benefit from some of those structures. Um, the people who would most benefit from changing those structures hold the least power. Um, and then a third point to that is that, like, the people who are now in those positions are accustomed to those same, like, neoliberalized features. So it's very hard to, like, you know, expect the lion to, to help his prey, so to speak. I think, um, yeah, the, the last thing... I would say is um, just that I guess, <laughs> as I said on, on previous podcasts, I've maybe been a little a little hard on academia, or um, kind of uh, contrasted it to to the world of action, which yeah, I, it possibly is a simplification. But I think there is something um, at the heart of all this is something really worthwhile. Like I always say, like doing an arts degree taught me how to read and write in a serious way. Um, so like, which you know has enriched my life and I think like there's something liberatory um from a political standpoint about about literacy about reading writing and thinking and historically um a lot of uh, socialist movements like um in after the revolution in Cuba the first thing they did was start trying to teach people how to read on a mass scale so it's not that like this kind of stuff is so disconnected from real life like it's it's the context has kind of fucked it up but I reckon like it's still worth um yeah, like it's not worth abandoning those those things. <laughs> I, I have no idea. Maybe a separate question is what like a real radical uh, university, a democratic model of, of higher education would look like. I don't know that any of us know, um, but I think it's still like something worth fighting for. Yeah, I firmly agree. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, well, thank you so much, Jerry, for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Jerry. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been really enjoyable. Yeah, no worries. Um, we will link to you on Twitter. Um yeah, we'll link to your Twitter in the show description if you want to follow Jerry. Um, and yeah, we might uh, chat to you again another time.